We are continuing in the book of Genesis, and this will be our last sermon on Genesis for a little while. Um, next week, Nick will be kicking off a sermon in Philippians. Um, so if you want to get a head start and begin reading through the book of Philippians, I'm sure he would appreciate that. You can come with all the answers next week and know exactly what he's going to say. Um, but that will go through the fall. He'll be going through the book of Philippians. Um, so up to this point, just to recap all that we talked about in the book of Genesis, if you remember back in February, we began with creation and talked about how God was the Lord over all creation. And then we experienced together the fall and the, the ramifications of the fall and God's selection of a man, Abraham, to walk with him. And we spent several months looking at the journey of faith that Abraham went through and how he learned to trust God even when he could not see um, any path to the promises that God had gave him. And then we saw Isaac and his journey of faith uh, for a few chapters. And for the past several months, we've been looking at Jacob. And Jacob's long and difficult journey. Jacob, a man whose name means heel grabber, means backstabber in Hebrew, um, started his life out very much trying to get his own way and burned a lot of bridges along the way. He damaged a lot of relationships so much so that he had to flee from home. And for 20 years, he was away from his parents and his twin brother, living with his uncle in a faraway land. And now he has begun his journey back. And this week we are going to read about um, him reconnecting with his brother and how they deal with all of those wounds from years ago that have driven themselves deep into the hearts of this family. So we are going to be in Genesis 33 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage if you would read along with me to start and then we will begin to break it apart and look at what God has to show us. So we'll start in Genesis 33 verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given, your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. We'll take a brief break here to recap what we talked about the last two weeks, that Jacob had prepared flocks of animals to send ahead to Esau in order to win Esau's favor. And so that's what Esau is asking about here is what were all these animals, these 540 plus goats and cows and camels that you sent? What does this mean? And Jacob said, 
to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Then in verse 9, But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then please accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed towards Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot that happens here, but the main thing in view is the reconciliation of these two brothers. These two brothers that had been separated for 20 years because of a lot of sin. What we're going to do today is we're going to look first at Jacob, the one who is expecting forgiveness, hoping to be forgiven, and see how often we are like Jacob, the ones needing forgiveness. And then we're going to look at Esau, the one who extends forgiveness, as often we are also the ones that need to extend forgiveness. So to start out, how did we get here? How did these two brothers, twin brothers, get to this place where they'd been divided for 20 years? Well, the first, it started out one day when Jacob was making a bowl of soup and Esau was extremely hungry. Esau coming in from the field, he was a man of the field, a hunter, came in and was so hungry that he just felt like he was going to starve to death. And Jacob, seeing his brother in his weak state, saw an opportunity at hand, a weak man that could be taken advantage of. And so Jacob convinced him to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup. The birthright in this culture was a double inheritance. So when Isaac died, he would divide his property into three portions and give two of those portions to Esau, the older son, and the other portion would go to Jacob. And Esau sells this portion for a bowl of soup because Jacob takes advantage of him in his state of weakness. Then, not shortly thereafter, Isaac is preparing to bless his son, a cultural thing that would happen typically on a father's deathbed, Isaac didn't know that he had plenty of years to live, but he was old and frail. And so he calls his oldest son and says, I want to bless you. I want to pass the blessing of God on to you as my oldest son. And Rebecca, Isaac's wife, catches wind of this 
and convinces Jacob to disguise himself as Esau and to steal the blessing, to get the blessing from Isaac. And so Jacob does this. After Jacob steals these blessings of land and prosperity from his brother, Esau, so outraged, decides that he is going to murder his brother. As soon as his father dies, he is going to get Jacob back for what he did. And so because of this threat of murder, Jacob has to flee home because it's not safe for him to live there anymore. We're often like Jacob, and the way that Jacob lived his life early on was he thought of himself. He was number one, and he was taking care of himself, did not think to the future, did not think about the ramifications of his plan, didn't think that maybe stealing the blessing from his brother would make his brother angry, didn't you know, think through the fact that his brother is impulsive and a hunter and a man maybe prone to violence. That didn't cross his mind. He just cared about getting what he wanted. And sometimes we live our lives the same way. We focus so much on ourselves and our needs and what we want that often other people are collateral damage on the way to us getting what we want. And so we find ourselves in Jacob's shoes, needing to humble ourselves and go and ask for forgiveness once we realize the pain that we've caused. So Jacob goes to seek for forgiveness, and there's several things that he does that I want to point out. Um, first, in verse 2, it says that he put the servants with their children in the front, and Leah with her children, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. This sounds familiar to what he has been doing the past several chapters, where he's been arranging his possessions in such a way that if Esau decides to attack, his most valuable possessions will be at the back. And so he keeps Joseph, the son that he loves most of all, at the back. And it seems like Jacob was once again trying to kind of hedge his bets and make sure everything is protected and safe. And the author kind of leads us to this. Jacob just had this amazing encounter with God and we're like, he's going to be a changed man. He's going to act differently. And then right away, Jacob is doing the exact same thing. But in verse 3, it says that Jacob himself went on before them. So rather than staying at the back to protect himself, Jacob puts himself at the front. This is a sign that Jacob is finally accepting responsibility. He's accepting the consequence of whatever his actions result in. He steps forward at the front saying, I'm the one that did this, and so I will face Esau first. So Jacob accepts responsibility. The second thing that he does is he humbles himself. He bows to the ground seven times. The number seven might seem insignificant here, but it actually corresponds to the blessing that Jacob received. Jacob received seven blessings from Isaac when he stole the blessing away from Esau. The first blessing, may God give you the dew of the heaven, the fatness of the earth, and the plenty of grain and wine. Second, may people serve you. Third, may nations bow down to you. Fourth, may you be a master over your brothers. Fifth, may your mother's sons bow down to you. Sixth, may those who curse you be cursed. And finally, seventh, may those who bless you be blessed. And so as Jacob approaches Esau, each time he bows, almost accepting the guilt for stealing that blessing, each of the seven blessings that he stole from Esau. And bowing is a sign of humility, contrition. He is putting himself underneath Esau's hand. 
He also, in verse 5, refers to himself as Esau's servants. When Esau asks about the children, he says that these are the children that God has graciously given your servant. Jacob is willing to become Esau's servant. He recognizes he is indebted to him. In fact, this is a reversal of the blessing that Jacob received. The blessing that Jacob received said that your, your brothers would bow down to you, yet here he is bowing down to his brother. And it said, your brothers, your mother's sons will be servants to you. And you will be a master over them. Yet here he is offering himself as a servant to his brother. He humbles himself. He accepts responsibility and humbles himself. And once he has been accepted and forgiven, he makes restitution for the wrong that had been done. He bows seven times in the apology for the blessing And then he allows Esau, he insists that Esau keep the herds that he sent ahead as making restitution for the birthright that he stole from Esau. Initially, these flocks were Jacob's scheme to win the good favor of Esau. He thought, if I send him a lot of presents and gifts, then Esau will soften his heart towards me and forgive me. And after he sent these flocks ahead to go meet Esau, he encounters God and recognizes that God's the one that fights for him. And he doesn't have to fight. He doesn't have to earn forgiveness on his own. And so now what turned into initially trying to buy forgiveness has now been transformed by God into the restitution for what Jacob took from Esau. In fact, when Jacob first sends these animals out, he calls them a minha. In Hebrew, a gift or a tribute, something that is given, an offering in order to earn favor. That's what he's sending them out as. But when he insists that Esau keeps them, in verse 11, he says, please accept my blessing. These are no longer a tribute. This is no longer Jacob trying to receive favor from, God, from Esau. It is now a blessing that Jacob is returning to Esau, corresponding to the blessing that he stole. So Jacob humbles himself, he accepts responsibility, and he makes restitution. In our efforts to seek forgiveness, we can often fall short by not doing these three things. It's easiest to fall short by not accepting responsibility for what we've done wrong. We might recognize that there's some sort of a broken relationship or there's tension there, And it's really easy to see the speck in our brother's eye rather than the log in our own eye, as Jesus says in the New Testament. It's easier to see what the other person did to make this relationship dysfunctional. It's easy to see their wrongs, the ways that they've hurt us. And we might also recognize the part that we played, but not quite be willing to accept the responsibility. We might not think it's that big of a deal, and so we push it aside. Jesus calls us to take the log out of our own eye before we're taking the speck out of our brother's eye, and that starts with accepting responsibility for the wrongs that we have done to others. There can't be any reconciliation, any forgiveness, if there's not first a confession of wrong, if we don't recognize the role that we've played. The second way that we fail in our efforts to seek forgiveness is by not humbling ourselves. 
Pride is the enemy of restored relationships. It's our unwillingness to admit that we aren't perfect and that we probably messed something up that keeps us from being reconciled. When we are unwilling to accept that we actually are broken human beings and we're like everybody else around us, when we are able to accept that and humble ourselves and confess, that's the first step towards that reconciled relationship. But if you have ever gone to try to reconcile a relationship with somebody and still been trying to hold on to your pride and still trying to come out on top, it's instead of reconciling and coming back together, it's just like hitting off one another and it just causes more damage. In an effort to reconcile, sometimes those conversations take a left turn and go even worse and the relationship gets even more damaged because we're not willing to humble ourselves in our pride, we continue to put other people down. And finally, we often fail in seeking forgiveness when we're unwilling to make restitution. The fear of seeking, the fear of what seeking forgiveness will cost us keeps us from asking for forgiveness. Feeling like if we go to somebody and admit that we were wrong, then it's going to cost us maybe materially or maybe it's going to cost us relationally. Maybe it's going to cost us and put us in a position before them where we're not going to have the same clout, the same um, reputation that we had before by humbling ourselves and asking for forgiveness. It costs. And so we must be willing to pay the cost in order to seek forgiveness. We should follow Jacob's example. This means that we don't try to buy forgiveness through gifts or measures of earning good favor, but we humbly confess. And once we confess and accept, are willing to make restitution to make things right. So that order is really important, that we are willing to make restitution once we've been forgiven, but we don't go and try to buy forgiveness through offering of gifts. This is hard. It's not easy. Our flesh is not bent towards humbling ourselves, admitting we were wrong, and paying somebody else back um, in a good way. Uh, We're more bent towards paying them back in a bad way. And like Jacob, Jacob learned through his wrestling with God that God is the one who fights for him. And when we recognize that in our lives, that God is the one that fights for us, we don't need to put up walls to protect ourselves anymore. We don't need to protect ourselves and keep people that we have dysfunctional relationships with at bay. We can trust God to fight for us and confess our wrongs. There might be situations, yes, where somebody is actually a physical danger and it would be wise to keep a distance from them. But more often than not, it's our own pride that wants to stay away from people that have hurt us. It's our own pride that keeps us from wanting to admit that we were wrong and to not accept the fact that God fights for us so we can let go of everything that we're fighting, everything that we're trying to win in our own strength and our our own power. We can trust God that he is the one that fights for us. So we all are like Jacob at times because we are all sinners and we all hurt other people and we all need forgiveness. And because we live around fallen and broken people, we're also like Esau and we need to extend forgiveness. So let's look now at Esau's journey. How did we get here? 
How did Esau end up as a man needing to forgive his brother? Well, Esau, if you remember, is a quite impulsive man. He lives by his emotion. He lives for the moment, takes advantage of what is right in front of him. Um, His impulsivity cost him his birthright. If he would have stopped and thought for a second that his future is not worth this one bowl of soup and that there was perhaps another way for him to find food, it might have saved a lot of heartache in his life. He's an impulsive man and also an angry man, the kind of person who issues threats of murder when something is taken from them. And we too can be like Esau. When something is wrong, something wrong is done to us, it is the worst thing in the world. When somebody hurts us, comes against us, they are the worst person in the world. Everything inside of us just desires to fight back, to push back, to take victory for ourselves, to have vengeance, to get revenge, and not forgive. It's, I can't think of a time where somebody wronged me and my first thought was like, I should really forgive them. It's usually a process I have to go through of, I can't believe they did that. I'm going to get them back. Okay, no, that's not right. Maybe I can do it in a subtle way that they won't notice. Okay, that's not right. Maybe I'll just keep them away and I won't talk to them and I'll just shut them out. No, that's not right. And then eventually I get to the point where this Holy Spirit works inside of me and says, you need to go and forgive them. So this is where Esau is. We haven't heard from him for 20 years. And now we don't know how he's going to respond. Last time we saw him, he was breathing murderous thoughts. Lucky for Jacob, Esau's personality is impulsive, and so it is quick to get angry, but also quick to forget and quick to move on. And Esau extends forgiveness. He is a forgetful man in a good way. He forgets the wrongs that have been done to him. When we encounter him, he's changed. He's not the man that is desiring to murder Jacob. In fact, he embraces him and falls on his neck, weeping. He falls on the same neck that wore the goat skin as a disguise to deceive his father and steal the blessing. Rather than lording over Jacob, he meets Jacob where he is, bowed down on the ground, weeping with him. Then in verse 9, when Jacob offers to make restitution, Esau isn't like, that's right, and you owe me a lot more than just this. He declines, showing that he does not need restitution. He has forgotten. He has let it go. And he is forgiven. And Jacob has to insist. Jacob has placed himself in a very vulnerable position. The tables have flipped from when Esau was the one coming to him, begging for food. Now Jacob is coming to Esau, begging for forgiveness. And Esau could say, this is my opportunity. Here is my nemesis at his weakest moment. Willing to do whatever it would take to make things right so I can take advantage of him. In fact, I can say that he needs to pay me back twofold for what he stole. That's kind of the way we like to think sometimes. We... The world has trained us to identify people in weak situations 
that have wronged us and to take advantage of the opportunity. But Esau does not do that. He shows himself actually as the wiser brother, the more righteous brother between the two, that he doesn't take advantage of Jacob and his vulnerability. Esau even expects that these two brothers are going to continue on and live together as one camp. He says, let us journey on together in verses 12 and 13 and lays out this plan where they're going to go together now. These two brothers reconciled and live in Seir where Esau lives. He is fully ready to reconcile and to be reunited and to live as a family with Jacob. Now Jacob declines because God has not called him to return to Seir. Seir is not in Canaan, the land that God told him to go back to. And so for Jacob to continue on with Esau would be to disobey God. And so he declines politely when he, when he says, Esau, go ahead, I will remain back at the pace of my children. And he says that I will come to my Lord in Seir. He promises that he will go and visit Esau but he only mentions himself in the singular as going to visit. And we don't ever get record of this visit as happening. The brothers do come together to bury their father. Um, but Jacob's intention was never to go and live in Seir. It was always to remain in the land of Canaan. But Esau had forgiven him to the point where he was ready to be fully reunited and rejoined as a family. And Esau even offers to leave behind people to help Jacob on their journey. In verse 15, Jacob has need because the flocks are young at the time of the year, and he's got children who aren't able to travel very quickly. And so Esau, a man who had every right to take more from Jacob, is now offering. This is showing grace. If justice is Jacob pays back what he deserved, mercy is Esau saying, I'm not going to hold you to paying that back. Grace is when Esau says, I will give you what do you need. I will give you, I will show grace to you and give you what you need. However, Jacob does decline the offer. But the fact that Esau made the offer shows his heart is changed. So we, like Esau, need to extend forgiveness, but we often fall short. One of the reasons that we fail to extend forgiveness and not just in word, but to fail to extend forgiveness in a forgetful manner like Esau, where we don't continually keep that in our back pocket, ready to pull it out the moment they slip up again. But we forgive them forgetfully. One reason that we fail is because of our pride. It works on both sides. Pride is the enemy of reconciled relationships. In our pride, we want to bring the same hurt to the other person that they brought to us. We demand justice. We demand, it's kind of in our like, American nature. We want right to be done and justice needs to be served. They can't get away with it. And so in our pride, in our high desire for justice, we fail to extend forgiveness. We might also see forgiveness as a weakness. A forgiving person is someone that gets taken advantage of. If you forgive somebody and forget and let it go, then they'll just come back and take advantage of you again because they can just walk all over you. That's the lie that we believe. Because we believe that we're fighting for ourselves and that God's not fighting for us. But when we recognize that God is fighting for us, that he is the one that protects us, it's okay to be weak. It's okay for other people 
to view us maybe as a pushover because our God's not a pushover and he's the one that's protecting us. Another reason that we fail is our perspective on the situation is wrong. Our perspective can view our enemies as God and God's enemies. Think of Esau. Esau, a religious man, fears the Lord, believes that it is his right as the firstborn to receive the blessing. And Jacob stole that away. Jacob got in the way of what God had for me. Jacob is fighting against God. And so me and God together, we're going to go get this Jacob guy. Now, that might seem a little far-fetched, but we, we do that in our lives. We see somebody, we're like, they are such a rotten sinner. They, God, you must just really want to get them. I'll help you out. You want to show them the error of their way. I'll be your messenger. I'll deliver the message. But vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He doesn't say vengeance is ours, let's go get them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God is the one that fights our battles. We also fail to extend forgiveness because we want the other person to apologize first. Esau has like a great scenario going for him. Not often in reconciliation is the person that wronged you going to come and bow seven times on the ground weeping asking for your forgiveness. In fact, that's probably never going to happen in your life. If it does, let me know. Um, but that's rarely the case. Often, we have to be willing to forgive and to forget without the other person ever even offering an apology. We have to humble ourselves and extend forgiveness. And so, rather than failing to forgive by waiting for them to make the first move, we must step up and humble ourselves and forgive. All these excuses that we give for not forgiving someone really stem from the fact that we don't believe that God fights for us. That we don't believe that he has our back and we have to do it ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves and we can't trust God to do it for us. So, as our prayer theme for this year, my call to you guys today is to reconcile. Reconciliation has been one of our prayer themes the entire year, and this message, this passage, fits right in with it. Um, I wanted to share a resource with you. I don't know if I've mentioned it before. If I have, it deserves mentioning again. If I haven't, then it's time that I mentioned it. Um, it is the book Peacemaker by Ken Sand. Um, this book, when I was in college, changed the way that I viewed my relationships because I recognize the call of God on me to be a reconciler. And I'm a very practical person. I'm an engineer, so I like somebody that lays things out in like, the right order, and he does that in this book. He lays out how to go and reconcile. So if you have not read this book, I would highly recommend it. I'm going to give a brief overview of the four steps to reconciliation that he lays out as a challenge to us as a church to continually seek reconciliation. Part of the thing with reconciliation, it's not just like, a okay, one time I thought through my life and I found everybody that I need to reconcile with and I got all my relationships right and now it's smooth sailing from here on out. We're broken, fallen human beings and every day we are damaging relationships and hurting other people without even recognizing it. And so we need to constantly be evaluating what relationships in our lives need reconciliation and restoration. So the first 
step that he lays out is to glorify God. It starts with God. It's not something that we muster up on our own, that we can earn the strength to just go out and to, to make all these relationships right and just do it in our own power. This is demonstrated, first of all, in Jacob, in his story. Before he encounters Esau, he encounters God. Before he sees Esau face-to-face, he sees God face-to-face, and it drastically changes his approach to Esau. Rather than trying to go and buy back forgiveness, he humbly submits himself. And so we must be right with the Lord first. So before we go and seek forgiveness, we must go and seek forgiveness from the Lord. And we have to trust God throughout the reconciliation process. The second step we've already mentioned is get the log out of your own eye. This means recognize the role that you played in the tension, the dysfunction, the relationship that is in some way broken. So it starts with examining your own role, and often we are blind to the ways that we have hurt other people. This is a great opportunity to find somebody that's close to you, that knows to you. Go and share with them the situation, not in a gossip manner, but go to them and say, here's what happened. Can you examine it any way where I might have been in the wrong here? Or something that I said might have been interpreted the wrong way. Don't assume that you didn't do anything wrong. If that's the assumption, you're probably missing something. And then once you recognize the law that is in your eye, confess. Confession brings freedom. Often we think we're free if we can keep everything to ourselves and we're not bound to others. But when we keep confession, it's like a weight that pulls us down. And when we don't confess, we don't admit our sins, we don't come to others humbly confessing, it's just hard every time you're around them. You don't want to look them in the eye because you know in the back of your head there's something there. There's just something gnawing at you. Get the log out of your eye. The next step is to gently restore. Following the example from Matthew 18, go to the person one-on-one first and speak the truth in love. This isn't speak the truth in a way that makes you come out on top, but it's also not trying to, in love, pass over what has actually happened and to act like there's not anything wrong. Speak the truth, but do it in love. Sometimes, though, one-on-one is not the best way, or that doesn't accomplish reconciliation, so it's necessary to bring others along. A third-party mediator is extremely helpful when relationships are tense or there has been uh, miscommunication. And so it is great to find somebody that is not like biased towards your side of the story and going to back you up, um, but to find somebody who's a neutral third party that can come and help the conversation move along. In fact, um, this happened in my life within the past year. Um, there was a misunderstanding in a workplace situation where I had unknowingly said some things that hurt other people. And I thought there was nothing wrong. And as a result, um, it became pretty evident that there was tension in this work relationship. And I wasn't fully sure why, but once I began to talk to them and understand what was going on, I realized that we had talked completely past each other in the situation, and the more that we talked about it, the worse things got. 
And so somebody wise advised me to bring along a mediator. And in fact, we brought two mediators into the conversation. And it was amazing. We, I think, had had three conversations prior to the mediator coming in, and each time the relationship got worse and tensions got higher. And then in like one half hour, hour conversation with a mediator, everything was smoothed over. It was amazing that the Bible works. That <laughs> bringing somebody along actually brought peace and reconciliation. So gently restore and then finally go and be reconciled. Forgive as God forgave you. We are all, as children of God, recipients of forgiveness beyond what we deserve. And because God has forgiven us and God fights for us, we can let our bitterness and our grudges go. In fact, this is what Jacob realized at the end of this passage. He recognized that God is his God. At the end, when he goes and he builds the altar, he calls the altar El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. His name has been changed to Israel, so what he's really is saying, God, God is my God. Which this is huge for Jacob. When he left Canaan, fleeing from his brother, God encounters him and says, I will be with you and I will bless you. And Jacob responded, when you do all of that, then you will be my God. But here now Jacob is saying, God, you are my God. You are the God of Israel. If we have received the forgiveness that he has offered, then he too is our God. And we can forgive as he has forgiven us. We can go and offer forgiveness to others. All this, though, is based on the fact that God has to be your God. If he is not your God, then it's all wonderful relationship advice, but it doesn't make a difference in the realm of eternity. And so it starts with making sure your relationship with God is reconciled. And if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in God, your trust in God, you have not come to him and recognized that you are a sinner, you have fallen short of his standard of perfection and holiness, that you need his forgiveness, that he offers through his son, through the death on the cross, that he made restitution for the wrongs that we did. then please come, talk to myself, talk to, to Nathan or Tim, one of the elders here, or really anybody else. We would all love to talk to you about the life and forgiveness that is in Jesus. For those of you who would sit here today and say, yes, God is my God, let me challenge you again. This is at least the second time this year that we've had a challenge to go out and be reconciled. And it needs to happen multiple times a year, to take time, take inventory of your life, of your relationships, and to go and be reconciled.